Hey, it's Cameron here. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I'd recommend checking out Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, and welcome to Ones and Twos, FP's economics podcast. Every week we take a couple of data points, we use them to try to explain the world. I'm Cameron Abadi, FP's deputy editor with you in Berlin, Germany. As always, Adam Twos, FP's economics columnist and Columbia University professor, is with us in New York. Hi, Adam. Hi, Cam. So in the second half of the show, we're going to be talking about fusion energy, which was in the headlines a few weeks ago, we thought we'd dig into that, the implications of that uh, uh, for the broader economy. But first, another data point that's from the news, and that is $3.2 billion. That is the discrepancy right now between the amount of money that authorities in the Bahamas have claimed they've recovered from the bankrupt crypto firm FTX and the amount of assets that the company's new leadership, which is based in the United States, claims has been recovered in fact. This was the scene six months ago in the Bahamas. The arrival and presence of FTX underscores the readiness of the Bahamas to be a home for global leaders in the crypto space. So what made the Bahamas so appealing to FTX in the first place? And what will happen to the nation's crypto hub status now that its biggest player has collapsed? So it's just one sign that even as the disgraced founder of FTX has been extradited to face a criminal trial in New York that Sam Bankman freed, the entire story of that firm's collapse, perhaps even cryptocurrencies in general, are still inextricably tied up with the Caribbean uh, and specifically the Bahamas. And that small chain of islands off the coast of Florida is the subject of a new essay by Adam, which will be appearing in Foreign Policy next week. It's really a remarkable piece. It zooms out to look at how the Bahamas became a global center for offshore finance and money laundering and how that financial economy fits in with the rest of the country's economic life and where it all may be heading in the near future. It's detailed and it also kind of makes you think about the broader global economy as it stands. Anyway, I'm sure you'll get reminders to read that next week, but I thought we should give a preview here to listeners of the podcast. So Adam, maybe you could start by describing how offshore finance came to play an outsized role in the Caribbean in general, again, and the Bahamas in particular. I mean, what exactly are the legal preconditions that the Bahamas fulfilled for, for playing that kind of role? Yeah, it's a fascinating story. I mean, this it's worth saying that this is the, the year of the 50th anniversary of Bahamian independence in the summer of 1973. And um, yes, like its cousins, you might say, in the remnants of the British Empire in Caribbean, the Bahamas isn't strictly speaking in the Caribbean, so we kind of call it the wider Caribbean. Mm. But Bermuda, likewise, is too far to the north, but the Cayman Islands, British Virgin Islands, these are like four standout centers of 
global offshore finance. And, and it is indeed an intriguing question as how they should have ended up like this. And I think that the key elements here are the fact that they are basically part of the British Empire. That's the key question, because um, that means that they're part of the sterling dollar connection that dominates global finance, really, from World War One onwards. Not one, but both together, initially with the dominance of the pound sterling, backed by gold initially, and then from 1945 onwards, um, the, the dollar-based system, but with sterling and the sterling area as its subordinate piece. And, and the other key element of this is that they are also common law systems. So they operate under English law. It's not British law, it's English law. Because Scotland has its own legal system. And the English legal system, along with the legal system of the state of New York, this is something that my colleague at Columbia, Katerina Pistor, has really allowed us to understand. These two legal systems, close cousins of each other again, the New York system and the English system, are the key legal coding mechanisms for finance in general. The derivatives contracts, complex financial contracts are all written in these two legal codes. And so the Caribbean islands have the advantage that they are strategically placed close to the United States. They are bona fide members of the this Anglo-American connubium, which emerges in the middle of the 20th century, and they operate in the legal system that is perfect for finance. That's the simple story, and what's really fascinating about the Bahamas is that it is, um, is that it is a the single case of a truly independent um, nation um, that operates post-imperially, post-colonial. It's a black majority state, emphatically black majority state, with a history of civil rights struggle in the nineteen sixties. Um, which nevertheless has retained status as admittedly not the top five offshore tax havens, but nevertheless in the top 15 or so. And the essay really describes this extraordinary balancing act, which has allowed that to be possible over the last half century of Bahamian independence. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, you do point out in the essay that there are not just yet these legal preconditions, but political conditions that the Bahamas fulfills. And it it seems like those political conditions are sort of in relationship to the rest of the economy in the Bahamas that you describe, the rest aside from the financial offshore economy that we've been discussing till now. And namely, there's a large economy that depends on the transactions in real estate and tourism in the Bahamas that I guess, sort of offers the political stability that's necessary for the rest of the economy to take root. So they got me wondering whether there's there's a kind of hierarchy in the economic relationships in the Bahamas. Does this real economy exist, this real estate and tourism economy, does that exist in some sense to create the financial economy in some sense? I mean, is the stability there in order to provide for that financial economy on top? I'm not sure I would quite put it in that kind of functional way. But if you're trying to understand why the Bahamas survives, you might say, as an offshore economy, offshore financial center, um, rather than, say, Jamaica or an absolutely extreme case, Haiti, you know, which could offer, in the Jamaican case, the common law, the English legal system, or in the Haitian case, you know, an infinitely manipulable political system in which money would presumably buy you every access you could possibly want. Um, neither of those, however, succeed as, as, as offshore financial centres. It's, it's a fanciful idea to even imagine it. So what is it that gives a 
post-colonial, black majority, developing economy in the 60s, the stability um, that allows anxious, and let's say it, white money to locate itself in a setting like that? Why Why will it go to a place like the Bahamas? Why does it feel safe there? It didn't feel safe in Cuba after the revolution in 59. It never felt safe in, in Jamaica. And there's no reason to feel safe in Haiti because it's a failed state. So the argument of the essay is that in a what in the 50s and 60s was an extremely troubled socio-political environment in which black nationalism, socio-economic radicalism was was by no means unknown. Even in the Bahamas itself, the early phases of Bahamian political history have a phase of economic nationalism, which is quite assertive and absolutely a demand for civil rights and the desegregation of the economy. What stabilizes growth sufficiently, if you like, to, to, to create a political cocoon around the offshore center is another offshore economy. And that other offshore economy making a very, you know, a long story short is tourism and property development. And that accounts for between 60 and 70% of GDP. So we misunderstand these islands if we think of them principally through the lens of tax avoidance. Really tax avoidance and offshore finance um, is the icing on the cake. And the body of the cake is made up of tourism and offshore property development. And, and that, of course, is dictated overwhelmingly by pr- proximity to the, to the United States. It's a, it's, you know, um, it's a 40-mile boat ride um, from Florida and Georgia to, to the Bahamas in a private boat. You can get there in the morning of, of sailing. It's a half-hour flight from Nassau to or Marsh Harbor to Miami. Um, these are essentially um, touristic suburbs of the southern states of the United States. And that's that economy is really what selects, if you like, for the possibility then of cocooned, depoliticized, shielded global wealth to feel comfortable and safe enough to actually locate itself there. Because the funny thing about offshore finance is the money's not actually there, and yet they're extremely nervous about where they put it slash don't put it, right? So like you you would think that you could put offshore money anywhere because essentially it's a legal figment because the actual operations are being done in the city of London or on Wall Street. But in fact, it's hypersensitive to where it is but is not present. And, and, and it, that balance is what is so fascinating about uh, notably the Bahamas. It is literally the only case of a fully sovereign post, post-colonial Black majority state, which serves as as a as a as a um, an offshore base like this. The other counterpart is Mauritius, interestingly, in the Indian Ocean, with a large Indian majority population, and it also sustains a, an offshore economy. So, I do want to ask you about the perspective of advanced economies when it comes to these hubs of offshore finance. I mean. It does seem like it's an open secret that these locations of tax avoidance exist. I mean, we're talking about it here on the podcast, and we knew about it even before it was in the headlines. And so when it comes to other countries that are seeing their money leave for these islands, are they just turning a blind eye to this? I mean, do they want, in some sense, these havens to exist 
I mean, this is a, a fascinating question. And, and again, I think I would warn against the functionalism um, that says, you know, that, that it's necessary, that it exists because it's needed. I mean, it exists because it serves the interests of extremely wealthy and influential people with very good lawyers. I mean, that's mm. why it mm. exists, right? Um, it exists because the Bank of England and the UK Treasury in the 1950s decided that it would be rather attractive for the British Empire to host and harbour very large-scale offshore transactions, not in sterling, which was a currency declining in significance, but in dollars. Um, and so they basically created the legal framework within which the um, so-called euro-dollar market operated. Now, if the US authorities had set their minds to it, they could, of course, have crushed this. The, the mm. US authorities are absolutely fearsome if they put their minds to tracking down financial activities they don't like. But they didn't because... There were very considerable sympathies in the U.S. Treasury in the 50s and 60s for Wall Street, which didn't like the Bretton Woods system because the Bretton Woods system, which was a system which pegged the dollar to gold and every other currency in the world against the dollar, to maintain those pegs required a variety of restrictions on hot money flows, which really hemmed in um, the kind of classic model of international banking, which had developed in the late 19th century, which the City of London had pioneered. Uh, and which had caused mayhem, of course, in the 1920s and 1930s. And the whole idea of Bretton Woods was to hem that in. But that's very much against the interests of global banks. It makes banking very boring and boring banking isn't profitable. And so chasing profit by various outs, if you like, um, was extremely attractive. It's not necessary to the functioning of the system in any in any obvious sense. It's just profitable and attractive and possible. So to turn to the crypto industry, which the Bahamas seemingly also went out of its way to cultivate, you know, you describe how this was a public policy choice by policymakers in the Bahamas. And I was curious what that says, do you think, about, about how policy gets developed there? I mean, how would you characterize the self-conception of public servants in a place like the Bahamas? I mean, how do they balance long-term planning versus yeah, cultivating new sources of foreign wealth and celebrity residents, all of that kind of froth that you also discuss in the essay. I mean, I think it's worth making a distinction between three things to start with. I mean, um, you know, money laundering really is the business of taking criminal money and mm. making it clean, right? So, so you start with something which is clearly illegal, mm. like the revenue of a, you know, of a of, a, of a, a drug deal, and the whole aim of the game is to convert it into something that is is clean, right? And and so that's one wing, and and money laundering of that type was, you know, really big business in the Bahamas in the 1980s as a result of the fact that they were the major entrepot for the Medellin cartels' cocaine business in the U.S. from the late 70s onwards. About 70 percent of the cocaine flowing into the U.S. came by way of the Bahamas through to the early 1980s. And so that generated a money laundering business. That's one side. The, 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 another side is tax avoidance, hmm. which essentially relies on anonymity, right? So you just don't ask where the money comes from or where it should really be instead. And from the 60s onwards, Bahamas had Swiss-style rules, which made it punishable for a bank official to disclose the beneficiary names, count numbers when I think of that type about. So what the, what the Bahamas, like other offshore centers, offers there is anonymity. And then the third way in which these offshore financial centers operate is as places for financial engineering, essentially, where 
You're not trying to avoid any, you're not trying to hide, you're not trying to clean money. You're simply routing it through a jurisdiction which offers you favorable terms for registration in one form or another, which allows you to um, pile up more leverage than you could some other way, which is simply in a convenient place for aggregating funds from different sources. Um, and that's sort of the corporate registry business that, for instance, the Cayman specializes in um, for hedge funds. And that's really where the crypto piece comes into play in the Bahamas, because mm. they spied in crypto in the 2010s, essentially a currently unregulated business that felt the need for some kind of regulation. So, so in this case, what you're offering is is not laundering services or or anonymity and and a screen of, of of secrecy, but the opposite. You're actually offering to legalize things, formalize things in a way that's attractive for the financial actors concerned. And and crypto got to the point and got to the scale, and we're very much in the midst of this now, where the question really arose of who would offer the right frameworks for regulation, the right registration for digital assets, regulation for crypto derivatives. And the Bahamas moved very concertedly, both political parties in the Bahamas, because it's a two-party system with government alternating between the two. And there was essentially a kind of consensus in the 2010s between the two parties that this might be the next big thing and might allow Bahamas to gain a, you know, an advantage over the Cayman Islands in particular. And so they passed a big piece of legislation in 2020, which was one judged by the global crypto community to be the most advanced, most sophisticated framing. Um, and it was the availability of regulation for crypto derivatives that actually Sam Bankman-Fried cites in 20, 2021 when they, when they moved the FTX business from Hong Kong, that and loose COVID restrictions. Okay, there, I, I really want to emphasize this. There is there is much more in this essay that Adam wrote. We are really just skimming the surface here. So I'd encourage everyone to look it up when it comes out next week. We will be touting it, I'm sure, at FP and our social media, and I guess Adam will be too. So look out for it. In the meantime, we're going to take a break here and come back to talk about uh, Fusion. Hi, this show is sponsored by BetterHelp. So there's something I've been meaning to get off my chest, and it has to do with uh, Little League. My son is on a uh, Little League baseball team here in Berlin, and the coach is, he's great. He's extremely devoted to the games, the practices. He also expects a lot of devotion from the parents, and I often end up feeling like I'm dropping the ball, uh, you know, not literally, but, you know, figuratively in terms of getting my son to practice on time, making sure he's prepared for practices, etc. And uh, I've been called out a few times. No, I've been more than a few times. Uh, pretty regularly, I am called out by this coach in, 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 in the form of text messages uh, admonishing me. And I've been meaning to tell the coach that, you know, life is busy and I can't always uh, hold up my end of the bargain. And, 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 and it would be helpful if he would not be so pushy about everything. But I do not say that yet. Instead, I carry it around in my chest and this becomes a stressor. Uh, maybe you all have stressors of your own kind that you're carrying around, big or small. What we all should know is that if we keep these stressors bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively in all sorts of ways. And that is where therapy comes in. Therapy can be a safe space to get things off your chest. You can figure out uh, how to work through whatever it is that's weighing you down. And that's just skimming the surface of what therapy can do. And it isn't just for those who have experienced major 
trauma. It's for everyone, whether you have a baseball coach in your life you've been meaning to talk to or another loved one. If you are thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It is entirely online. It is designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Visit betterhelp.com slash ones twos today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash ones twos. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Hi, welcome back. The next data point is 3.15, as in 3.15 megajoules, which is the amount of energy that was produced earlier this month by a reactor in California. U.S. scientists making a huge breakthrough. A source tells CNN that for the first time ever, researchers have been able to create energy from a fusion reaction. I wake up this morning and it's all about fusion. Fusion everywhere. Everybody's talking about fusion. Maybe the entire human race has something to be hopeful about. Basically, it's a giant step towards a clean energy future without dependence on fossil fuels. The key here is that only 2.05 megajoules of laser energy were used to produce that 3.15 megajoules of output. And the process used to create that increase was nuclear fusion. That's the process by which atoms are basically combined in such a way as to release energy. Essentially, it's the same process that the sun uses to heat our solar system. So this fusion reaction in California is being treated as a major breakthrough in nuclear physics, but potentially also in the future of energy. The world has been talking for decades about the potential for nuclear fusion to serve as a carbon-neutral source of energy without any of the toxic waste of nuclear energy as we've known it until now. So we wanted to try to talk this all out. Adam, this breakthrough was achieved by the National Ignition Facility. That's the name of the reactor out in California. Could you describe the history of this? Uh, it goes by the acronym NIF and its relationship to the U.S. government. Yeah, this is real gee whiz stuff, isn't it? I <laughs> Hard not to get carried away. I, I didn't know that there was such a thing as a national ignition facility, and there's a bit of me that thinks we all ought to have one of those. Um, <laughs> the, the, it's um, it's a, a project that goes back I think originally to some really far out thinking in the 1950s about um, you know uses that could be made of atomic bombs, um, and that that's both you know first generation and second generation atomic bombs, so including thermonuclear hydrogen bombs, for the purposes of power generation. And um, the you know the original idea was literally to explode. Um, you know, have organize a continuous stream of atomic explosions underground. Hmm. You know, um, find some suitably stable caves, explode several atomic bombs a day to keep a huge mass of water boiling to generate lots of steam. Anyway, that's where it started. And <laughs> anyway, out of all of this, from the late sixties onwards, came more serious programs in fusion energy, which are essentially focused on lasers. And that's what this national ignition facility is. It is the ultimate fire lighter, right? It's the absolutely most high-powered 
torch as far as I understand it, right? And obviously I'm this, I'm so outside my comfort zone here, but basically it's, it's a gigantic, you know, a torch or something like, you know, the sort of effect that you generate as a boy scout when you, or a cub scout or whatever, when you, when you start a fire by concentrating the heat of the sun using a magnifying glass, right? So that's, that's essentially what we're doing. And the stunning success of the current round of experiments announced by the Department of Energy to the public, um, you know, a few weeks ago now is that, is that now for the first time ever, um, the amount of energy generated by the fusion reaction um, is larger than the amount of energy fired at it by the laser. Of course, the amount of energy necessary to generate the laser beam is it's then multiples in the case, I think of this laser beam somewhere between 150 times larger than the amount that actually reaches the fuel material. So this is still a powerfully net negative reaction that we've going on here. It uses more energy than it produces. But at least hypothetically, if you could increase the yield and reduce the energy demands of the lasers, you could end up with a process that actually generates power on a large scale. The total cost to date is in the order of, I think, about $3.5 billion. So... I mean, obviously, there's a breakthrough here. And, and I'm curious whether this kind of breakthrough and the publicity around it can serve to raise the status in general of materials engineering, the kind of old fashioned engineering that we uh, think about relative to computer engineering, or even financial engineering, which is another way we hear the use of that term. I mean, is the old-fashioned kind of engineering in need of a status boost in our society? I mean, my instinct was to immediately say, yes, of course it is. You know, poor dad, children, engineers, they need a pat on the head and, and aren't they important? And isn't it a good thing that um, the energy transition, the supply chain crisis has forced us all to realize um, that the world that we live in is made up of stuff and um, that stuff is not, you know, just given to us. It is the embodiment. I'm looking out on a, you know, the scene of a Manhattan skyline, like is the embodiment of engineering skill, human genius cast into stone and steel and concrete and and everything, you know, everything around us. Um, but then I start, actually looked at the data for the National Science Foundation, and it turns out that amongst PhDs of all types, it's, you know, it's the humanities and the social sciences that we need to worry about because mm. the... Uh, the share of the share of doctorates in engineering, and this is distinct from computer science, is in fact on the rise and has been very dramatically over the last twenty years. And the, the share of doctorates going to engineering in the broadest sense has risen from fourteen to twenty percent. So, in fact, you know, thousands, tens, tens, hundreds of thousands of brilliant young people are easily smart enough to recognise just how exciting this is and flock into those very mm. tough, very demanding disciplines in very large numbers, and not just, of course, in the United States, but all over the world. And thank God for that. I do want to ask, how long are we still from having fusion as a, as a workable source of energy? I mean, what are the hurdles that still stand in the way here? What is the path generally from basic research uh, to, to industrial use? I think the only honest answer to this in general, and certainly for me, who is in no way qualified to give you an answer to this question, Cam, <laughs> is that we do not know the answer to this. Um, you know, there was somebody talking to the New York Times, and it really took me aback because this expert assumed that the answer was half a century. Uh, so, and and the you know the the optimism engendered by this extraordinary news from this lab was that it probably won't be half a century now, but it could easily be many decades. 
I mean, how is the track record on predicting anything multiple decades away? Well, we do it all the time with big infrastructure. I mean, we do it, we have to do it all the time with big infrastructure, right? You build anything large, it, you can't do it in less than five years or so. And you, you're you making those investments. I mean, every single major industrial plant, say a steel furnace, is set up to operate over 30 years. Um so you know this the 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 national ignition um facility is um expected to operate for thirty years, so you build anything like that, you are forced de facto to um to take a view that it's something we should do an episode about yeah we we probably should, but uh I guess first to bring this conversation to an end, I just wanted to ask a bit more about the role that fusion energies played in society's fantasies about energy for decades. I mean, you pointed out this idea goes back to the 50s. It probably even goes back to original research about nuclear energy to begin with. And yet that whole time, it seems like the promise has been that, you know, the big breakthrough is just one decade away. So yeah, what what accounts for this kind of consistent attraction to this source of energy? Is it the idea that fusion provides this kind of free lunch that no other source of energy can i mean what is it that makes fusion so much more attractive than say the renewable energy sources we already have uh, you know we have solar wind etc i mean those could be incrementally improved so why all this attention to this uh, energy source is not even fully developed yet i mean i think fundamentally because it's gee whiz final frontier you know extraordinary stuff and the the physics involved are mind blowing. The engineering is 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 crazy and so much more exciting than just a solar panel sitting, you know, beat up somewhere in a field somewhere or on a roof uh, or a windmill slowly turning. Um, but I think this is a quite fundamental question, and it's been I was been thinking about this ever since we did that episode on the you know the Green Party and German nuclear choices, which elicited, shall we say, quite a lot of response. Some of it quite heated, and not all of it very kind. And um, and it's been kind of making me think ever since about how we discuss these issues. Um, so, I mean, <laughs> let me let me take this opportunity to to uh, to expand the argument a little bit. Like, I I think you know commitments to this kind of technology, like fusion, like the development of atomic power, are essential. I don't think we should back away from them at all. Right? We should we should absolutely have strong, viable, energetic, um, practical fundamental energy research programs in in all of these areas we cannot afford to rule out any technology at this point given the desperation of our situation faced with the climate crisis right? that's and in fact we should recognize and again like this is a question of getting our perspective right the overwhelming majority of fundamental energy research funding in the last half century has gone to atomic power rather than renewables right i mean the the if you look at the national funding levels from the 70s onwards it's overwhelmingly tilted in that direction because it's high energy physics it's super sexy for physicists it's directly related to the military industrial complex and so the synergies are there it's very expensive it requires a lot of capital investment so the engineering companies like get, getting in on this you know as much as this national ignition facility is a public project the 3.5 billion were mainly not spent on scientists, right? It was mainly spent on extremely complex raw materials and labor necessary to build the facilities, and much of that comes from the private sector. So there is a huge private sector stake in these kind of projects. 
But, 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 but having said all of that and not in any way wanting to rule out the promise of these kind of technologies in principle, our experience, and this is what we have to reckon with, both at the level of economics and at the level of politics, with this particular set of technologies, those to do with nuclear power, fission and fusion over the last 50 years has been sobering. And on the whole, they appear at this point to be both massively unpopular uh, technologies and in some cases, hugely politicized technologies and incredibly expensive in terms of capital costs, not in terms of operating them, but in terms of capital costs to build them. And so a realistic energy strategy that addresses a crisis that where we need to make huge strides in the next 20 to 30 years should not rule those technologies out, but it should realistically gauge how much contribution they can make. And in both in Europe and in the United States, there is evidently a case for maintaining the existing capacity, but it's pretty difficult to see what the case is for investing in new capacity when the costs are as explosively uneconomic as we see, for instance, in the UK with the Hinkley Point reactor, which EDF, the French power uh, utility, is building for the British, where the costs are out of control. It could end up being 50, 20, who really knows, billion uh, dollars or pounds. Pounds and the dollars are pretty much the same right now. The thing is vastly behind schedule and only remotely economic at the kind of hugely inflated energy prices we're paying right now. So, that is, I think, the reality of the situation, and it's why I find it difficult to make the case for either conventional atomic power or fusion power as an immediately practical or relevant answer to the issues facing Western countries, democracies as they are, in the chase for um, a solution to the problem of the energy transition and decarbonization. And we are lucky, in all, extraordinarily lucky, that renewable technology has come on as quickly as it has. We should double down on this. We should invest even more. And that, of course, includes squarely addressing the issue of intermittency, the fact that the sun doesn't shine and the wind doesn't blow all the time. And we therefore need various types of backup um, up to and including residual fossil fuel capacity um, to see us through um, the emergencies until key technologies have been resolved. We do need to uh, leave the conversation there. I think we can all agree that any of these options are better than actually blowing up nuclear bombs for the sake Boiling of water in underground uh, caves by exploding nuclear bombs yeah. twice a day? Like, kudos. I like the idea <laughs> of every time I'm turning on my lights that there is actually nuclear explosions happening underground somewhere. Thank God that's not the case. But we will leave the conversation there for now. Ones and Twos is written and edited by me, Cameron Abadi, along with Adam Twos. It is produced by Laura Rossbrow Tellum and Rob Sachs. Our social media manager is Claudia Tady. The executive editor of FP Podcasts is Dan Efron. This show is made possible through the support of foreign policy readers. If you're interested not just in Adam Two's, but news and analysis from around the world, consider subscribing. Ones and Two's listeners even get a 15% discount. Just go to foreignpolicy.com slash subscribe and use the promo code TOOZE at checkout. That is T-O-O-Z-E. And listeners, as always, we love hearing your feedback. You can send us voice messages on the Ones and Twos homepage on foreignpolicy.com, or you can email us, podcasts at foreignpolicy.com, or tweet us. That's at Ones and Twos Pod. Thanks very much for listening, and we will see you back in your feed next week.
Hi, I'm Annalise Riles, professor of law at Northwestern University. I'm also an anthropologist and the host of a new podcast, Everyday Ambassador, where we give you the small tools that make big change. The idea for this show has been a long time in the making. I actually remember the exact day I started thinking about it. It was March 11th, 2011. I was in Japan conducting research on the financial markets of Tokyo. All of a sudden, I heard a loud rumbling sound and the room started shaking. Everything came crashing off the shelves. I looked out the window and I could see the skyscrapers swaying so much that they looked like they would touch. And then the sirens started going off. A tsunami was on the way. These were the harbingers of one of Japan's worst ever disasters, the meltdown of the Fukushima nuclear power plant. The Japanese government now says two reactors are in partial meltdown and four more are at risk. The meltdown completely turned Japan on its head. I saw hundreds of stunned office workers covered in dust walking down empty train tracks to get from the city to their homes in the suburbs. Electricity was out, internet, cell phones. Supplies flew off the shelves of stores. Geiger counters became an in-demand item, which is never a good thing. Living through a crisis of this magnitude was an inflection point for me. To prevent the next Fukushima or any of the other crises we face today, we'll have to work much more effectively across silos of expertise and national boundaries. And we'll need to harness the wisdom of everyone, from local fishers to nuclear physicists, on how the world really works and what happens when things go awry. Using this approach, I've gone on to spur countless innovations in global policy. And that's what this podcast is all about. Everyday Ambassador peels back the curtains of high-stakes leadership and gives everyone backstage access to the most powerful methods of diplomacy. In each episode, we'll break things down into deceptively simple moves that everyone can make to help build a more peaceful and sustainable world. Like giving a gift. You want to make it tasteful. You want to make it thoughtful. You thought about the other individual. You thought about what their likes and dislikes are. Or creating a fiction. Taking on a fictional scenario and a role outside of the one that you occupy in your day-to-day -day life allows you to think through what you would like to have done differently. Or just taking the time to have fun. Trying to see this as more so building long-term relationships that are going to be helpful uh, down the line when negotiations are a bit harder, as all negotiations are. Each week, you'll hear surprising stories which reveal the moves you can make to change the status quo, to find ways to connect and move things forward. So join me and become an everyday ambassador coming to you this spring on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen.